Father, thank you for the great privilege as your church represented here in Shenandoah Junction to gather in Jesus' name, to take our Bibles and with great anticipation to open them and to receive a word from you. Father, thank you for the ways that the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and accomplishes so many different things in us. We do want to be in an obedient people, a humble people, a people who demonstrate our love for Jesus through our obedience to your word. So use this time well now, Lord, with us. Strengthen us, encourage us, and build us up as your church that we would go from here, be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have with me here this morning something that uh, I know that many of you recognize and are quite familiar with, and this is actually an actual edition um, one of about three that was used quite heavily, a blueprint copy of our building here, of our church. Blueprints are interesting documents. Some of you know them well. You work with them. Others of you have had a chance to build your own home, and so you've looked through blueprints, you've carefully selected floor plans, and then ordered your prints. And, you know, blueprints have a lot of fine print, don't they? And they start from the ground up, and they show us what to do, where it's going to fit on the property, you know, and did you notice that this is um, pretty wrinkled and worn? This is not the, the main edition. The main edition blueprint was so tattered and torn and taped up by the time we were done building this building that it was barely recognizable. Why? Why? Because what the architect called for really matters. Interesting, isn't it, that when you go to build a building, and, and let's continue to use our building here as an illustration, the guys didn't look at it, get around, talk about it, and say, great, that's great. Okay, let's just chuck that thing aside. All right, I think we should put a door there. Let's make the ceiling higher here. Who cares about those elevations over there? Doesn't matter about that uh, egress there and access and all this. You just don't get creative with a blueprint unless you're an architect and know what you're doing. Why? Bad things are going to happen, Right? Bad things. You start being creative with the structure and the internal elements of a building blueprint, you're going to have a disaster on your hands about the first time it snows or the wind blows. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning because I want you to picture this chapter as the Apostle Paul referencing a blueprint to Timothy for the local church The Apostle Paul, in many ways, was like an architect of the church. You have to remember that this is the guy who hated Christ's church. Remember? He was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was religious. He loved the Old Testament. He could not believe that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, the promised one. And so when Jesus came, was born of Mary, ministered for those three years, that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about. Then the book of Acts The Christians began, Jesus went back into heaven in chapter 1, and then the church began to grow. And in communities, starting in Jerusalem, the church began to grow, and the apostles, they began to preach the gospel according to Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, and the apostle Paul at that time named Saul hated that. You remember that one day on a dusty road heading to Damascus to kill Christians? I'm talking literally take bricks and smash them upside the head, kind of kill. This guy who went and got the lists from the synagogues of the people who had left the synagogues in the name of Jesus to round them up, to beat them down, to burn their property, he hated the church. 
And in a most remarkable way on that dusty road one day, that bright light knocked him down, blinded him. He could see Jesus and nothing else. He was convinced that he was the resurrected Christ. And do you remember the strange assignment that God gave him through Christ in these great visions and this vision on the road? I want you to take my gospel around the world and plant churches in all these communities. You know what you're trying to burn and tear down and kill? I want you to become the architect of my church. I want you to become the expert on how my church is to run. I want you to reach the Gentile world. Peter, in a lot of ways, was licensed with reaching the Jews and Paul, the Gentiles, is kind of how we think of it. Interesting, isn't it? A man who hated the church becomes an expert on the church. And in fact, the balance of our New Testament ends up being written by this guy to churches either to correct them as though it were, for example, the church at Corinth. Look, you guys, you've gotten off of the blueprint. What is wrong with you? Let me fix it. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians, for example, is written to a church that was very messed up and broken. When he wrote the book of Philippians, that meant that was to the church at Philippi. We'll reference that again in a minute. Timothy was a young pastor at the church at Ephesus. And this is like a blueprint. And I want to do two things today with chapter 3. We've been in chapter 3 for months. I want to finish chapter 3 today. Do I, do I hear witness and amen out there? <laughs> and I want to read the remaining verses that we haven't covered. And then I want to go back and I want to step back from chapter 3 in particular. But I want you to recognize that what Paul is going to tell us in the final words of chapter 3... And you need to understand, when you read your Bible and you get to that chapter 3 part, it, it, the numbers weren't there when Paul wrote it, but it, it, it makes a break at an appropriate time at the end of chapter 3 because it's kind of like he's finished a section. And he's going to move on. It's going to become more personal to Timothy. It's going to be corrective. It's going to be instructive. Not that it already hasn't been. But he's going to address some very practical things. And so I hope you'll be here in the, in the weeks and months ahead as we receive the last half of chapters 4, 5, and 6 of First Timothy, this letter to a young pastor to a church at Ephesus, and we're going to remind ourselves in chapter 3, as it were a blueprint, you better pay attention and build according to the prince, because if you get creative with this thing, it's all going to fall apart. Now, I want to tell you, we live in an era of creative church. Do you know that? We live in an era where everybody's a church expert. There's never been more articles written, more books written on how to do church. How to do church so everybody will show up. Get a guy up here in a muscle shirt, blow up a hot water bottle till it breaks, and you'll grow your church. I don't know what that has to do with anything. And we kind of do stuff like that, you know. We had a good time shooting our bows and arrows at fake animals out in the woods. Go figure. Yesterday, our 3D archery shoot to draw men in and to fellowship and... Get to know one another better. But listen, when our gizmos and our gadgets and our creativity take over and we throw God's blueprint away on what church is and how to do it, we're asking for huge trouble. Let's read the rest of our text. I want to finish this and comment on it briefly. Then I want to go back and I want us to look at chapter 3, this blueprint, and I want you to see four Essential structural elements to the church. You might call them main beams. Four main beams that the Apostle Paul is going to reference in chapter 3. 
And I'm telling you, part of the problem with the church today, and they tell us in the decades of the 2000, from 2000 to 2010, church people who watch these things tell us that 3,700 churches a month shut down. I don't know how many churches started up during that time. 3,700 churches, excuse me, a year. In the 10-year decade of the 2000s, I think that comes out to 37,000 churches in North America shut down in the first decade of the 2000s. I am suggesting that if you were to scrutinize and look closely, that you will find that many times the reason churches crumble and fall apart and even go into non-existence, and wouldn't this make a great carpet warehouse? Nursing home. The reason churches crumble and die and fall apart is because people start getting creative. They forget the blueprint and they think the blueprint doesn't matter. And I'm telling you, you've got to build according to the blueprint or it's going to blow apart. Here's our remaining verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you. Now listen, this is why he wrote the letter 1 Timothy in our New Testament. But I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, he didn't know whether his ship would get blown off course or if he would change his mind or travel was difficult. I have a plan, but I might change my plan or my plans might get changed. We can all relate to that. That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He goes on then and concludes, as the Apostle Paul often did, he distracted himself in his writing with the, with the great, awesome reality of who God was. And this time he breaks into this hymn of Christology. And he kind of just gets going and he thinks he just can't help himself. Great indeed, we, we confess. This is part of our confession. Is this mystery of godliness. And then it's all about Jesus. It's, it's probably a hymn that they sang in the early church. You'll notice in your Bibles it's broken out in, in prose. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And that's how he concludes this section of his letter. Apostle Paul says, Timothy, I'm writing this letter so that you will know how to behave, how to function in the household or the church of the living God. Now, one thing you have to be very careful to do is to clarify in your mind that it doesn't mean wearing ball caps in the foyer once you enter this church. Okay? It really doesn't have anything to do with the cement blocks and the shingles on the roof, this square building. You see, we are the church, the people of God. We've identified ourselves, and I believe clearly in a New Testament taught manner, of a local body of believers, and they dot the countryside. In fact, when the sun started coming up, wherever it starts coming up first on Sunday morning and circles the globe, I often think early on Sunday morning that as the sun comes up, God's people are rising and it goes all the way around the globe and believers in Christ gather. And you know how they gather? We don't gather all together. We gather in our local bodies of, of the body of Christ, in our local churches. He's talking about the body of Christ, the people, not the building so much. I don't think Paul's too bent out of shape about playing basketball in the auditorium when we stack up the chairs. And so you're not going to get a lot of opinions on the pastor's behavior in church based off this verse because he doesn't say it. He's already told us what he means about our behavior in church. It's really, I take it, to be chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then it will be chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this letter. 
I'm writing this to you so that you will know what to do and how to behave in the household of faith. You believers will know how to interact and what to do. I'm giving you, you might say, as the architect of the New Testament church in many ways, the blueprint, do it this way. We're going to just isolate chapter 3. We spent so much time there. I want to step back from it. And I want to give you now four main beams that the Apostle Paul is talking about. These, these main beams that the architect calls for in the local church. And if you take them away, you're going to compromise the integrity of the church. Just as, just as taking our blueprint and tossing it aside and getting really creative because we think it looks cool or is a lot of fun could compromise an actual building. So that's our word picture, our analogy. When we back up to chapter 3, and we'll not take time to read it, we have read over and over weekly through these verses. We have in chapter 3 the beginning of the first main beam of a church that he's calling for, and I'm suggesting that our behavior here in church needs to be characterized in including, number one, elders who lead. Elders who lead. We've spent weeks breaking down each of these dynamics to to speak specifically to the qualifications of elders. The reason that we've taken such time for that is that under this, I want you to see that, let's just remind ourselves, because he was not exhaustive in his discussion about elders, but I think it was very, very instructive and enduring instruction that elders are to be the overseers of the church So let me just click off about five or six dynamics about elders that we get this straight before we move on. We look at our blueprint. Here it is in the church. This is how we behave. First of all, we will have elders who lead. The first thing I want you to see about elders who lead from our passage and from a few other passages is that it is, number one, it is a role of responsibility. It is a role of responsibility. Do you remember what he called the elders here? It's the episkopos, it's the overseer, it's the bishops, it's the people who are to oversee the church. Who's in charge here? It's the elders, it's the overseers, and it's a role of responsibility. We're to, the analogy that is used regularly in the New Testament, and you should know this well by now, is that we shepherd the flock. At Fellowship Bible Church, we have three staff pastors and three, you might say, lay elders who work together in unity and equality at a six-man elder team right now. I'm the senior pastor. Sometimes we refer from a book that we've read, that we've been influenced by, a first among equals. God didn't call for us to have a six-headed leadership model here. So the senior pastor is, in essence, the leader of equals. But let me tell you, I don't always get my way, and we share together, and we all have an equal voice at the table as God leads through the overseers and people are like sheep don't they sheep need a shepherd and people need leadership people left to themselves I'm not saying you can't think I'm not saying you're not creative I'm not saying that you don't exercise your spiritual gifts I'm not saying that you don't take initiative I'm not saying that you're just to say how high when we say jump that's not it we'll talk about that in a minute Remind ourselves. But in the blueprint of God's New Testament church, there are elders who lead, and it is a position of responsibility. In fact, let's continue on this theme for just a minute and turn in your Bibles over to your right hand, a few pages, it's not very far, to the end of Hebrews and chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we don't know who wrote this letter, 
to the Hebrew believers. And uh, there's some really insightful instruction here as he closes out this letter. Hebrews 13, just look at verse 17. Notice what he says. He's talking about the congregation following the elders like sheep following a shepherd is an analogy regularly used. And the writer here says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's... You stop and think about that for a minute. That is an overwhelming level of responsibility for one person to have on another person. You are responsible for the souls of the sheep, of the people, their spiritual nurture, their discipleship, their growth, their walk of obedience. You are responsible for their souls. You tell me this is not a great responsibility. And he says, look at it, it even gets more serious. He says, as those who will have to give an account. That's amazing. We've been talking lately at the elder table because we recognize that maybe we get a C minus on our overseeing. It's not, it's not on purpose. It's just the overwhelming reality of, of the growth and what's happening and the size of the congregation and how do we react and what do we do and how do we make sure that we are God's church with shepherds guiding and leading the sheep. We talk, we don't even know who comes to this church. Do you know that? There is nobody anywhere, there is no program of list of names in this office of everybody who comes to this church. It's been changing. It's like, I see people all the time. I see them in the back. I never get to talk to them. And you're telling me I'm responsible for their soul and that I'm going to give an account for those people? Listen. It's a serious matter to be an elder, an overseer, a shepherd in God's local church to have to be responsible for the souls of people and to have to give an account to God. It's one reason why we try to build in a mechanism of membership and we're evaluating membership right now. What does it mean to be a member of the local church? And we're operating on the premise that all believers in the Lord Christ who have have a testimony of following Him through baptism ought to be a member of the church. You shouldn't have to be a theologian to be a member of your local church. But somehow we've got to identify out of this huge group who is it that we're responsible for, who comes here and who doesn't come here. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes on Saturday night, I'll tell you, sometimes on Saturday night I come into the building really late at night. Maybe I need a paper or a book or see a light on or something and maybe it's between 10 and midnight on a Saturday night. The building's dark, it's very quiet, and I walk in the back of the auditorium here, and there's no lights on, just the glow of the exit lights, and I'm just overwhelmed with the reality of the responsibility of shepherding the flock and having to be fit to stand before the people and to give an account for your soul. To be a shepherd is a position of responsibility, isn't it? It's incredible. Let's finish the rest of the verse because it's helpful to the elders. He says to the congregation, 1317 of Hebrews, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you know what it is to be blessed with godly leadership? I hope you do. And I hope you recognize how important it is to bring stability to your family and to your world And it should help bring stability to our community to have a godly, Christ-centered church with godly, responsible leaders. 
The writer to the Hebrews said, make it easy on your shepherds, follow them easily, do it with joy, otherwise it's to no benefit to you. Why, why be a pain to your elders? This is not to come over people and say, you better straighten up. It is the reality of what it means when a church gathers in unity and peace and love and joy that that is a, that is a powerful, impacting, life-impacting thing, isn't it? Well, let's move on. We're back in 1 Timothy. We're looking at the blueprint of our church, and we're only on the first main beam that, of structural strength for our church. Elders who lead, it's a role of responsibility. Secondly, let's make sure we mark that it is, a, it is, it, it is to be held to a standard of spiritual maturity. The eldership is to be held to a standard of spiritual maturity. That's why we spent all this time on this list. People who are above reproach, they're in love with their wife. We're not going to break down the list again. Managing their household well, of good reputation in the community. They're mature, godly Christians that you can emulate in your Christian walk. Not only is it to be held to a standard of spiritual maturity, but in relating to the, to the huge level of responsibility to be the overseer of someone's soul, it is also to be approached with a heart of humility. A heart of humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter gave instruction about the eldership, he says there that the elders are to approach their work not in a domineering manner, but with humility. There's something really aesthetically beautiful about a humble leader who has courage, who has strength, but has genuine godly humility. Amen? It's, it's, it's just something that we long for. There's a guy in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, his name's Diatrophes. You don't know too many people who get named Diatrophes. It's because it's a negative name. The Apostle John was writing to the church there and he tells them, watch out for Diatrophes because he wants to usurp his authority in the church. He wants to have the preeminence, it says. Don't be a Diatrophes. Elders... We, don't, we try to be qualified and humble. We don't need diatrophies. We need humble leadership. Let me say a couple other little things before we move off our first main beam of just reminding ourselves of the blueprint of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we've been studying. Not only is it a role of responsibility to be an elder, and overseer, it demands spiritual maturity. It is to be approached with humility. But you notice that this is written in the context of masculinity let me just say it again publicly that we teach here and we believe the New Testament is clear that the elder role is a male role. God doesn't place the man in charge at home and then bring him to church and put the woman in charge of him. 1 Corinthians 11.3 speaks to this. The Apostle Paul already spoke to this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, he talked about how and he also emphasized this in 1 Corinthians 11. So it's just like in all the churches we teach that the women are to be quiet, the men are to lead. You say, well, I don't like that. That's like going to your blueprint and saying, I really don't like that. Let's change it. Go ahead and change it and see what happens. I'm telling you, there's a reason churches break down. And trying to come up with a new plan, trying to come up with some new idea and not using an ancient blueprint, because sometimes people look at it that way. You're using a 2,000-year-old blueprint? Absolutely, and it's as relevant as today's news. There's the blueprint. You try to alter the blueprint, and the lid's going to come off. So it's defined by masculinity, number four. Defined by masculinity. 
Fifth, I want you to see also before we move away from this, it doesn't say this uh, explicitly here in the text, but I want you to also to remember and know on our study on the eldership that it is part of a plurality. It is part of a plurality. It doesn't say it right here, but if you study your New Testament, the New Testament doesn't know of a church that didn't have a plurality of elders. In Acts chapter 20, for example, when the Apostle Paul, calling these very elders from Ephesus to meet him from Miletus, he said, come meet with me. He called the elders. It is clear in the context that it was a group of elders that came. When he addresses the Philippian believers, when he addresses the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, he says to all the believers and to all the deacons and all the elders, you don't get singular out of that. It was clear that at the Philippian church there were deacons and elders It's only logical that God would establish the strength of a group of godly leaders and not leave it to one man. I want to tell you something. It is a dangerous thing to alter the blueprint and to teach a church that there's only one elder in the church and that he's in charge and that it's a pastor-run church. I'm telling you, that is problem. That's trouble waiting to happen. I'll tell you a story. When I was a youth pastor, I've told this story before. Many years ago when I was a youth pastor, I, I had a CDL and so I would drive the bus sometimes. And I had an invitation from an area church, another time, another place, another area, drive the bus full of our teens on a Wednesday night to an evangelistic meeting that was happening at this church. And so we loaded up our bus and we had a packed out bus and we go rolling into this kind of a smaller country church and we pull in the driveway. The parking lot was kind of packed out because it was a special night with evangelistic outreach and I pulled in up as far as I could and it was a wet night and I unloaded the teens and I slid open my side window and there was a man from the church who was kind of patrolling the parking lot and helping people park and things. And I said, hey, bud, where do I park my bus? I kid you not, he looks up at me and says, I don't know, just a minute, let me go ask my pastor. I said, you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. Now, I know what it is to be, want to be in charge of everything. <laughs> but do not come and ask me where to park the bus. Because I'll tell you this, you can park it anywhere you want, but park it right there. And so, I, listen, something's broken. Something's not according to the blueprint. When you have a grown, strong man in your church who's out in the parking lot, and he doesn't have the confidence to tell you where to park a bus without going and asking his pastor, that's an abuse of power in the church. That is not loving, humble, godly leadership. It's a plurality, to be a plurality. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul told Titus, he wrote Titus almost at the same time he wrote 1 Timothy. He said, I left you in Crete to establish elders in all of the, all of the cities, in the churches. James chapter 5, verse 14, it's where the sick person is to call the pastor of his church to come pray over him. He's to call the elders It's clear that it's a a group, it's a plurality. No one man can do this job. And so make sure you have straight that in God's blueprint for the local church, it is to be part of a plurality, the eldership is. And then all of these things added together to conclude this part of our main beam of structural soundness in our church. This then is the key to stability. Responsible, mature, humble, godly, Men coming together, growing together, praying together is the source of stability for the local church. 
And I hope that you got that out of chapter 3, that you recognize that there's a reason that Paul went to such great length to say this is what an elder looks like. The first main beam of structural soundness for our church on our blueprint is elders who lead. The second part, beginning with verse 8, and we just went over this the last two weeks, are deacons who serve. Deacons who serve. Listen, we all know that at the heart of Christianity, in its essence, is service. Our Lord washed the feet of the disciples as a model for us. Matthew chapter 20, we talked about the fact that the, the essence of greatness in the Christian life is to serve and be the servant of all. And then Paul breaks out to Timothy in the fine print of the blueprint, and he says, but in your church you better build it with super servants, the diakonos. Remember what we said that meant? That's somebody who's waiting on other people, waiting like a table waiter. The servants of the church, qualified All believers are servants, but then in the local church, there's to be these qualified servants and their wives, or perhaps the diakonos, the deaconesses, ladies who serve with the men. We we would lean towards the idea that it's the deacon and his wife. We talked about that just last week. Men and women ready and waiting to serve. How beautiful is that in the local church? So we have the main beam of the eldership, elders who lead. We have the main beam of deacons who serve. Now we're in the new part that we just read this morning, and we have two more, two more structural essentials for our church. And the third thing is members who know. Members who know. Members who know what? Members who know who they are. By members, I'm saying people who are part of the congregation at large. I hope to come to see you soon, verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if you delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the... And he's going to call us three things. We are the household of God, that is, we are a family, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Do you know all that? Do you know that's who you are? Do you know that we're not just... Listen, this isn't like a girlfriend's club, a bowling club, a bunch of 3D archery shooters clubs, a bunch of people that just like to get together. This is the household of faith, the household of God. We are a family. I don't know if I even understand all that that means, but I really like it, and I know that it means that we're brothers and sisters, we're joint heirs with Jesus, And he doesn't call us a business, and he doesn't call us some kind of a club. He calls us a family. Household is a word there, that a place where the family gathers. When we think of ourselves as family, it changes the way we look at one another. Everybody needs people around them. There's no such thing in the New Testament of a disconnected believer. Do you know that? There's no such thing as a Christian who says, I just worship the Lord on my own uh, on Sunday morning, probably on a golf course but, or in a bass boat. There's no such thing as a believer in the Lord Christ in our New Testament held up for us as a model, as someone who's not connected to the local church. So if you profess Christ, you need to be connected to your local body because you need us and we need you. And the New Testament is totally clear. But don't you love, who do you call when you're in trouble? I mean, I have a AAA card in my pocket just to not be a pain to certain people. So, like, if I'm out in, you know, the middle of Illinois and I break down, I can call AAA, they can come fix my car. But do you know what it is to have people? And for me, it's in this group. How many people can you call 
Listen, in this household of faith and in the greater household of faith around the world, from the West Coast to the East Coast, from the North to the South, to the continent of Africa, I've got guys that could call at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, man, I need you right now. And they would stumble out of bed, put their jeans on, grab their credit card, buy a flight, and they would get to me as fast as they could. What is that worth? That's part of being household. That's part of being in love with Jesus so much that it shows in my love for one another. I worry that we're not there here. I worry that when you don't even know somebody's name two seats away and you've been sitting there for two years that you don't know that they're part of the household. Well, we move on and he also says you've got to have people that know you are also the church of the living God. We serve the living God, people. The world might marginalize us, but I read the end of the book and we win because we serve a living God. Don't act like you're defeated. Don't act like you're just another group of people that get together so you can eat. You better know, you better know this is the household of faith and this is the church of the living God and this is also number three, a pillar and a buttress for the truth. What does that mean? It means that God uses His church to stand for the truth in the world. It's why Pastor Shupi preached, you better eat the Word, you better labor at reading the Word. You have to know the Word because you're the pillar of the truth. And the truth is right here in the book. And if you don't know the book, you're no good at being the pillar of the truth. And the blueprint calls for us to do this. The blueprint says, this is who you are and you better know it. And if you don't pay attention to the blueprint then the truth is out the window and it is remarkable how if it, wasn't, if it wasn't so pitifully sad and tragic, it would be laughable what people say they believe is the truth. So there we are. We have main beam number one. We have elders who lead. We have deacons who serve. We have members who know who they are. And finally, we recognize that number fourth main beam, that Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul says, great indeed, we confess it's a mystery. I think that the Apostle Paul just lets himself in his writing conclude this paragraph by just praising Jesus with his pen. And he breaks into writing down a hymn that evidently was a confession of the church or a hymn that they all knew. You'll notice that there's six lines, and and I like to think of it as six stanzas. And it's a Christology. It's the theology of Christ laid out right in front of us. Look what it says. He was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation, right? Jesus, we talked about it a few weeks ago, how the word got around heaven and the angels couldn't figure out what he was doing. He was going to go. Going to go be in the womb of Mary. What's that all about? That's the incarnation. That's God who loves us even while we were yet sinners, that he sent his only son be born of a virgin, to grow up, to go to the cross, to be worthy to carry our sin there, to be our substitute for our sin. You know what it is to look to the cross, have your sin forgiven? It's because of the incarnation of Christ. God alone, through His Son Jesus, sent the only one who was worthy, who, who was in His perfection, able to take our sin upon Himself and give us His righteousness, so that by God's grace, through faith, through His love that we sang about this morning, You can come to the cross. You can lay down your burden of sin. You can receive the righteousness of Christ. And someday on your day of accountability, and it's coming fast, you'll stand before the Lord, and He won't see 
dirty old worm scumbait Van Marceau, he'll see Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, appropriated by faith through God's grace. Do you know that kind of salvation? That's what it means when people get into water of baptism. They've entered by grace through faith into this salvation in Christ. They're identifying with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Are you born again today? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? This Christology continues. It moves from the incarnation to the resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit. I take that to be the Holy Spirit. Bible scholars debate whether the S is capital or not. It makes sense to me. Vindicated by the Spirit or the Spirit of truth, possibly the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.4 says, Romans 1.4 says that it, it was with great power and authority that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God through the Holy Spirit when He resurrected Him from the dead. I take this to be a statement about the resurrection of Christ. Vindicated means to, vindicated means to confirm, to substantiate, to declare and defend it. We have the incarnation, the resurrection. We have glorification. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. That's evangelization of the gospel of Christ, the Great Commission. People respond to that Great Commission and become disciples, believed on in the world. That's salvation and ultimately taken up into glory. That's the ascension. This is nothing other than a Christology. Christ is the main thing of our church. Without Jesus, we have nothing. And so there we have our main beams. The blueprint says... You better build it like that. You better have elders that lead. You better have deacons that serve. You better have members who know. And you better know that Jesus is Lord. It's a pretty good blueprint formula, isn't it? You can sit around and sing Kumbaya and light candles and hum and have Bible studies and try to figure out how to do it better. And I'm telling you, it's in the blueprint. The one who went out with a hammer to try to break the church became the architect of the church. And he wrote down how we're supposed to do church. You say, but he didn't say what color the carpet was supposed to be. It's because he doesn't care. Because it doesn't matter. Because it's people, not a building. Let's bow in prayer. Let's just think for a minute what we've talked about here. Chapter 3 has been about leadership, hasn't it? Are you praying for your elders? Are you submissive to your elders? Do you aspire to be an elder? Are you preparing yourself to lead and to serve? You men, are you leading your home the way we set this up as a template for all the men of our church? Praise God for the blessing of godly leadership. I hope you do. This chapter has been about service. Do you have a heart of humility? and Are you willing to serve one another? And Are there others among us who find great joy and they meet the qualifications of being this servant to the church at a higher recognized level, involving themselves in so many intimate ways in people's worlds, helping them in their moments of need and crisis, embarrassment, brokenness, and they're qualified to come in and serve at a time like that and help them through it. Oh, we need people like that. Can you remind yourselves from this chapter that you're the church of the living God? And together we, we're pillars. We hold up the truth and we demonstrate the truth. And Christ Jesus is our Lord. Father, thank you for this instruction that has been so helpful. Would you help us to hold to it as a builder to a blueprint? 
recognizing that there is, there's no way to improve upon it. It's what the prince called for. It's the way it's supposed to be. And out of this then springs a healthy, growing body of believers who can highly impact one another and their world. By your grace, may we be this kind of church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.